0: Hello again, you're very welcome back to the ITAG podcast, Technology and Innovation from the West of Ireland. This is Philip Smith, delighted on this episode to welcome Bruce Daisley. Bruce is a successful best selling author. He's also created the podcast Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and we had a highly enjoyable talk with him on the future of work at Atlantic, a recent technology and innovation conference from ITAG. Bruce is also an ex-VP at Twitter, and he joins us today to talk about all things related to the future of work. Bruce, you're very welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. So lovely to talk again.
0: There's so many things in this area, the future of work, it's just completely become something that's accelerated with the pandemic events. It was something that was on the agenda very much before uh, the pandemic, but it has definitely been accelerated. Before we get into to talk about all of that, could we just get a, an idea of your career journey and how you ended up um, running podcasts on the future of work?
1: Yeah, so um, my career largely started off um, initially in radio and, and uh, print in magazines. And um, and then about 12, 13 years ago, I went to work at Google. I worked at Google for a while. I, I was always... Um, fascinated with workplace culture, so I was always fascinated with why, you know. Specifically, when I worked in radio, I had some friends who worked for a rival company, and we had <laughs> broadly the same job, and yet my experience and, and my colleagues' experience was uh, was joyous. You know, it wasn't necessarily a well-resourced company, but we had an incredible camaraderie, a really strong uh, spirit. And yet by the people I knew working at the rival company just had this sort of weariness to them. This, they, they hated all aspects of their life. They just, you know, they, they looked beaten down and beleaguered. And so I was so intrigued. Wow. People doing the same job, their experience can be so different. Anyway, so when I got the opportunity to go and work at Google, like a lot of people, I found myself searching best places to work. And you go online, and you search best places to work. And no doubt in the in the top two or three firms, it says Google. So I thought, all right, so these guys have got the answer. You know, if I've always had like this curiosity in this, these guys have got the answer. And, of course, what you discover is that, no, they haven't got any of the answers that the rest of us haven't got. Um, They just redefined what they considered culture to be. So, you know, big tech firms redefined culture to be free food or they redefined culture to be beautiful offices or they redefined culture to be, you know, um, a yoga studio. Now, none of those are benefits, but they're not culture. And so I got the opportunity uh, a few years later, Twitter came and asked me if they'd, if I'd like to go and set up Twitter in, in the UK and then in Europe. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, look, I've got the opportunity to try and build that culture myself. So that's it. So I spent, you know, 12 years working in big tech firms, uh, initially observing that maybe they didn't have the answers on culture and then thinking, can I, as a sort of lay practitioner of this, can I try and build a good culture in one of those environments
0: how, how do you think it has changed particularly through the pandemic the, the, the corporate spaces that we inhabit for most of our day
1: i think the the really big difference uh right now is where people um how open-minded people are to to what comes next i'll give you a specific example over the course of the last 12 months a lot of companies I've been very fortunate a lot of companies have contacted me saying can you help us navigate this can you help us make decisions and i would say that probably one of the categorizations that you might have considered determined the culture of companies and how enlightened they were two or three years ago might have been you know what industry they're in what sector they're in and uh, i found that that hasn't been the case in this so i worked with one raw materials company a primary goods company and they told me we you know we feel that the building we were in defined our culture more than we thought you know it was wooden paneled it was old-fashioned it was very formal and so the culture became very formal and they said now we've we've sort of we've escaped um we've escaped the gravitational pull of that building now we're thinking let's do something that's completely maverick because maybe the building we're in can change our culture or, or let's not have a building in the same way. Another organization told me that they used to, a retail business. They said everyone used to get up at five o'clock and leave. Partly because their history, their heritage came from factories. They had a factory next door. The bell went in the factory at five o'clock. So everyone, the bell went in the, in the office at five o'clock. Everyone would get up and leave. In the last 12 months, they've abandoned that. You know, that's no longer exists. And they've they've had just an extraordinary year of success. So they're like, wow, you know, if we'd have tried to change the culture, the bell culture in the office in the old days, we couldn't have done it. Now we're thinking maybe we don't need an office in the same way. Really interesting. And, you know, when I chat to big tech firms, I've been very fortunate to chat to some of the biggest and the newest tech firms they are being far more traditional. You know, some of the firms are published, Google are saying, we'll expect you to be three days a week in the office. You know, other big firms are saying similar things. And so it's interesting, the firms that you might have predicted to embrace this and do something maverick aren't necessarily the ones doing it. And I think that is going to mean that when we project forwards 12 months, the range of outcomes is going to be, Uh, very different
0: it has happened so quickly we would still be like in a small pilot of as first stage if the project had even got off the ground at this point and because everybody was you know I won't say forced or this got foisted upon us all that kind of change management it was just a kind of a we we have to get on with this kind of nearly a survival instinct kicked in
1: I I think you're absolutely right. You know, I've chatted to so many organisations who said, you know, if we'd have, if someone in March last year had said, will you give this a a go? They said, we'd have probably tried something in Q1 this year, quarter one this year in January, and I suspect we'd be on the verge of abandoning it now. You know, it's it's, it's just a really intriguing one. And and you know, the flip side, you know, I mentioned that some of the companies that have been surprisingly um progressive aren't necessarily the obvious ones. I chatted to one local authority and this local authority, you know, you can imagine the computers they were probably on. They were probably on, you know, th- those Windows machines that take 15 minutes to boot up. You go and make yourself a cup of tea by the time it's it's uh, it's warming up. And they had to move everyone onto laptops. Within a month, they'd decided Oh, well, maybe we don't need as much office space as we used to have. They said, OK, we're either going to sell this office, you know, so by, by April last year, they decided they were going to sell one of their offices. And if we can't sell it, we'll convert it into uh, housing for our local residents. Now, this is just so advanced, you know, the companies that you wouldn't, wouldn't expect to be as as willing to embrace change, are really sort of setting the, the pace here. And I think, you know, you're completely right. No pilot test would have achieved what we've accomplished here.
0: Chris, can I ask about um, engagement and hiring specifically? So lots of companies have now hired, have, have large percentages of their workforce now that have never been in the office, they've never met anybody they got a laptop in the mail and they're now trying to engage with their work colleagues and so on that is a very difficult situation both for challenges for managers to get to create that engagement uh, and also for the for the new hires to to kind of get connected with their new peers
1: yeah most definitely these um the you know these I, I think the, the job for all of us to do is to recognize that, you know, the reason why every religion around the world has something that denotes importance to feasts and gatherings and rituals is because these things are Im- immensely powerful for us. You know, coming together, being part of a congregation, being part of a group isn't an accidental um association with religions it's because what happens when we are in big groups is that is transformational it elevates our experience there's a really interesting academic paper um that was reading a few weeks ago that said all there is um you're able to measure a, a an increase in well-being from people being religious but you know it says when we appraise this most of the benefit of well-being can be attributed to the benefit of being part of a group being part of something bigger than ourselves which is not in any way to, to do anything other than to celebrate the fact that religion has spotted this you know in religion we've got organizations of human beings for, for the last two millennia three millennia you know and what they've all noticed is when we are in a congregation with other people it makes us feel better now you know, the mistake that we could easily make here is that all of us as our desktop experts, we could decide, oh, we don't need that. That's now superfluous. And we'd be throwing away the, you know, the the, the learnings of, you know, several millennia of experience. So I think really critical for all of us actually to think, look, yes, absolutely. These parts of our job that are these Lego bricks units of productivity and work we need to do. But we can't neglect the fact that when we're connected with other people and alongside other people, it seems to be transformational for that word that you used for our engagement.
0: I wonder obviously the gig economy is a a real thing. The the thought struck me in some ways is, is this new world where you're hiring individuals that you've never met them you're forming an opinion like we're talking here today over a video conference we've never met there is that separation so in some ways is it is it contributing to the rise of the gig economy in that managers now need to think about there's less there's less connection. So, maybe the the duration of that relationship or that engagement may be shorter. So, you need to think about things more from a gig economy point of view.
1: Well, um, I think, you know, caveat before we sort of enter into what's to follow is that the truth is no one knows. So, you know, no one really knows. We can project. There is one report that suggests that by the end of this decade, uh, around 45% of workers will be freelance. So, not necessarily a gig economy, but they will be. They will be working on projects for organizations rather than permanently associated to them so you know that raises really interesting challenges obviously if you're working freelance you might not necessarily be compelled to go and work in the office so that you know working from the the, the hills outside galway might suddenly be uh be sort of really appealing because you know you can you can sort of you can work in a different way so um so i think there are people reflecting on those things. I think more than anything, you know, always what you find with situations like this is that there's an uneven distribution. If you are one of the most demanded skills or one of the most demanded experiences, your experience of work is always different. People are willing to pay more for you. You're able to call the shots. If you're in something less differentiated if you're in you know a job role that's more commoditized then unfortunately these advantages aren't aren't given to you so um, I think you know the most critical thing for people who are making policy on these things is to make sure that no one's left behind just because maybe your job isn't as appealing that doesn't mean that you are forced to go to the, the worst working conditions each day. So we've got to try and bring some balance. But the, there is some evidence that suggests we will split shift to a slightly more independent framework of work.
0: Innovation is another thing that comes to mind. So we, we talked about you know, the power of, of being with other people and the, you know, raising the, the spirit. And obviously that's the creative juices and all that kind of stuff gets going. Are, what are the new practices or change practices that companies need to think about from an innovation point of view, given that everyone is distributed to four corners of the country.
1: Yeah, I think the critical thing for me is that innovation lives in Slack. It lives in, um, by by that, I mean, sort of in the gaps between things. You know, generally, people are less creative when they're overscheduled. They're less creative when they don't have time to reflect. And the experience for work for a lot of us over the last 12 months has been back-to-back video calls, struggling to get anything done, sort of showing uh, FaceTime, you know, on, on FaceTime and you know sort of showing staring into the screen to be seen and um and what you find is that generally those blocks of interruptions those blocks of uh, sort of constant um interruption don't necessarily correlate well to people being imaginative and, and innovative so i think you know that's probably a critical le- learning for us what can we do to Give us space to allow ideas to breathe.
0: You mentioned, you know, Zoom calls. It's like, you know, it's not just Zoom calls at work. So it's Zoom calls at work. It's Zoom calls with your friends, followed by Zoom calls with your family. As human beings, the going to the office is a is a social outlet, right? So like, leaving leaving outside the work, and I guess I'm getting into maybe mental health and stuff like that. I guess with this with this kind of topic but we all as individuals have to kind of look after number one and look after our own health our mental health our physical health in this situation companies too are going to have to initiate policy in this area to to support their their employees like and i'm not just talking about so i guess where i'm going with this bruce is where he reports of a company in this country that have decided that there will not be an office anymore, but building is up for lease and there will not be an office. So that that seems at odds with, uh, you know, what we were talking about earlier in terms of the power of bringing people together. You know, is that a short-sighted kind of view in, from your perspective?
1: Um, I think it depends on what we're saying. If we're saying that they're not going to have an office, and so as a consequence of that, they are... Uh, the people are never going to come together at all, then yes, it would be. But if they're saying we're not going to have an office because um, what we are going to do, there's there's some companies out there. So, you know, the the company that I always think of is WordPress. Um, The the company that makes WordPress is called Automatic and they don't have an office. So, you know, anyone can go and live in Tralee. They can go and live in New York. They can go and live in... In Oslo, you know, they, it's sort of they, they can plant themselves every, anywhere around the world. And what they say is they say, once every quarter, as uh, so it might be the last week of the quarter, we're going to bring everyone to Palm Springs in California. We're going to bring everyone to, you know, Boston, Massachusetts. We're going to, and so they gather them all together for two or three days of sort of these energized collective gatherings. And they say the cost of that is a fraction of us having an office, but it's far more stimulating and, you know, it allows us to, to do our job. So look, so if you said that company's that's saying we're not going to have an office uh, is saying we're never going to meet in person again, I would say that that's almost certainly a mistake. But if you're saying that company that's not going to have an office is going to, enable someone to construct their grand design in the middle of the Scottish Highlands and, you know, and still uh, still do their job, then I suspect there's going to be some occupations that are well suited to that. Now, look, you know, the interesting thing is that when we look into the firms who have done this, that a lot of the firms who have had this completely remote form of working have been computer software companies, which, it, you know, involves a lot of, working alone a lot of concentration time not a lot of uh, time with customers or with with people outside the organization now a lot of organizations aren't in that situation they either have to meet with customers or they have to sell to people or they have to interact or you know they've they've got far more social jobs so you know the cautionary note we can't necessarily say um that's the lessons of these firms are going to be completely applicable to us. But I think they can prove interesting stimulations.
0: The other thought I had, this is a big change. So I I won't use the word revolution, but as in in terms of employees, you know, people have seen they can work from home. There isn't this kind of old school, big brother boss that's like expecting their people to be, chained to the desk at 9 a.m. So is there a a sense that employees are are kind of taking back control of their their lives a bit more? Because they've they've got a lot of flexibility because when this happened first, everybody needed to juggle life, you know, all their personal situations, their childcare situations, their school situations, their work. So everybody had like, ultra flexibility so is there a a feel that the people are 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 taking more control of their own lives now from a from a work point of view and that has implications for their employers and how they're managed because there are people may not take too kindly to going back to like well i think this is your desk at nine o'clock
1: Exactly that. I think there's a really critical thing that, you know, we've had the, the the scales have dropped from our eyes to some extent. So if you think about the, the situation we're in, we found firstly that, you know, I think most people would say they've worked as hard this year and as they've ever worked. And, and you know, they're when it comes to sort of personal gratification, personal satisfaction, they'd say, you know what, I've done some really good work this year. I've, I've actually got in the most trying circumstances that any of us could ever have conceived, we, I, I've done some good work. And, you know, I'm prepared to defend that to my boss. I'm prepared to, you know, to make the case for that. But as a consequence of that, we've had scales drop from our eyes, just thinking, wow, I was in like this collective folly. I was, I was in this collective act act of lunacy where every morning I was getting up at six o'clock. I was tearing around the house to get people out of the house on time. Then I was committing myself to this commute that was stressing me out. I was arriving caffeinated and adrenalized at my desk at just around nine o'clock, charging straight into meetings. Then I was sort of reversing undoing all of it at six o'clock. And, and, you know, I, I think we've, we've reflected on that going, okay, in hindsight, the idea of transplanting ourselves a few miles down the road or however long it is for, for, for some of us um, in such an urgent hurry each morning seems an unnecessary cortisol-charged act of sort of self-abuse, really. And so that's why a lot of us are saying, hang on, I can do some of this job in a less stressful way. And if any of us are candid, you know, there's a there's a guy I adore um, who is a property expert, a guy called Anthony Slumbers. And he says, look, no company wanted an office to have an office. They wanted an office to have a productive workforce. And it's a really important reminder. You know, we wanted an office to get the job done. No one wanted, you know, very few people wanted an office just so they had a, a cost sitting on the balance sheet. Um, and if we wanted an office to have a productive workforce, we've pretty much demonstrated in the last 12 months we can have a productive workforce so the, then the question becomes okay so could we be more productive could we enhance some of what we've achieved in the last 12 months by having this workplace and specifically how would we use it to do that and it's a really helpful question because it does it does make us think okay if we've got if we've got a day of back to back meetings it for the first time we're we're saying to ourselves, you know, now what is the objective of those meetings? I I often think about meetings as sort of, you know, really simplistically. But, you know, sometimes you've got convergent meetings, sometimes divergent meetings. And what do I mean by that? Sometimes you've got convergent meetings, where, which is just a an information exchange. You're all trying to converge on one version of the truth. You're trying to agree, you know, here's what everyone's doing this week. You know, we're all familiar. This sounds like a Monday meeting for a lot of us. You know, we gather, we hear what everyone else is doing there are those meetings that are divergent meetings which is you're actually all going in there to have a discussion about you know who to promote or what to do next or what the plan for next quarter is and there's a bit of a disagreement around the table and actually sort of reading people's body language reading people's you know non-verbal contributions is a really big part of knowing getting the sense of the room now what you might say is Those convergent meetings, back to back, you know, an hour with this team, an hour with this, I could do them on video call because we've we've got a rhythm of doing it. We're rattling through. But the ones I really want to do in person are those ones where there's a little bit of a ding dong going on. There's a bit of a disagreement between, you know. Jeff and Jeff, and, you know, we're we're sort of, we're we're arguing amongst us. I want to do them in the room because, firstly, when we've had a bit of a disagreement, it's always good to clear the air and make sure it was just, you know, it was was just about the discussion. And so we might say, oh, actually, we've been thinking for all this time that we, we want all of our meetings face to face. But maybe we don't. Maybe we're like, actually, we want some of our meetings to be face to face, the ones that need to be but some of them that are just like these routine things that we've developed, were are very willing to do these as virtual meetings. I think it's such an interesting evolution. I think if you'd have said 12 months ago, people would have said, you've got to do meetings face-to-face. They don't work when you go. And now people are like, okay, we have to do some meetings face-to-face, but we've changed our perspective on it.
0: Yeah, it's, it, and that's the hybrid, right, right there. It's mm-hmm. not it's not one or the other. It's it's probably a mixture of both in terms of remote and in person. Bruce Daisley, ex EMEA VP at Twitter and best selling author of The Joy of Work, Podcaster Extraordinaire. Thanks for joining us on the iTech Podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks. <laughs>
0: You can listen back to prior episodes. We're on SoundCloud or indeed wherever you get your podcasts. You can also catch us on social media. Just look for Itag Podcast or Atlantic. Until next time, from Philip Smith, take care.